I'm Gabriela Fresquez, and this is Radar 2021. It's been almost a week since the long-anticipated, spectator-free Tokyo Olympics came to a close. triggering for anyone else whose parents never showed up to their sporting events or just me. This year, it felt like the purpose of the games to make us feel completely unworthy in the presence of mind-blowing athleticism was overshadowed by a slew of controversies that we won't be forgetting anytime soon. The top medical advisor in Tokyo just last week cautioned against having any fans. Global outrage this morning after Becca Myers, a three-time Paralympic gold medalist swimmer, officially withdrew from the Tokyo Games after being told she could not bring her personal care support assistant. Richardson apologized for the positive test, saying she used marijuana to cope with the death of her biological mother. Other stories that dominated this year's Olympics revolved around how the International Olympic Committee regulates athletes and determines who exactly is eligible to go for the gold. As track superstar Shikari Richardson reminded the world, athletes are humans. I, I just say, don't judge me because I am human. I'm, I'm new. I just happen to run a little faster. And so I apologize for the fact that I need to know how to control my emotions. The Olympics have a history of amplifying debates around things like human rights, race relations, gender identity, and bringing them to a worldwide stage. They also have a legacy of censoring athletes with something called Rule 50. To understand political speech at the Olympics today, you have to go back to 1968. Can you imagine getting push alerts on your phone in 1968? You think 2020 was a lot. Uh, so Martin Luther King is assassinated in April. Robert Kennedy is assassinated that summer. The Democratic Convention explodes. Two African-American runners, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, won the gold and bronze for the 200-meter event at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. John Carlos and Tommy Smith had already debated, okay, what are we going to do? They go to the medal podium in socks, and that's a way of talking about black poverty. They uh, have a pair of black gloves, each of them is wearing one, and the, that's how they bring attention to raising the fist, which is the black power salute. This led to the creation of Rule 50 in the Olympics Charter in 1975. You can tell that Rule 50 comes out of exactly this protest we've been talking about. There's some particular language in there where they say, you are not to express national or racial, I think they actually use the word propaganda. The IOC has somewhat relaxed Rule 50, but Professor Mooney thinks social media could pose an even greater challenge to its enforcement. There's this, I think, increased awareness of athletes as human beings rather than sort of vehicles of achievement. But I also think social media has a role to play in allowing athletes to express that kind of sort of dual, you know, I am an athlete, but I am also a person. And I think social media is going to allow those conversations even to circumvent things like Rule 50. And while the IOC has never stripped a medal because of a political statement, it has punished athletes for protest by sending them home or permanently expelling them from the games. But 
Last year, the IOC loosened speech restrictions, and in a surprise to no one, this year, Olympians had a lot to say. If I wanted to represent the U.S., I could. If I want to represent Puerto Rico, I can, which I did. There's a lot of people like me out there that is mixed or grew up in the States, and you know we know our Puerto Rican roots, though. You know, there, is more, there are more openly out LGBT athletes at this Olympic Games than any other Olympic Games previously. And I hope that any young LGBT person out there can see that no matter how alone you feel right now, you are not alone and that you can achieve anything. Wir wollen einfach eine freie Entscheidung und jedem die freie Möglichkeit überlassen, sich so anzuziehen, wie er möchte und dass das auch überhaupt nicht von der Leistung abhängt, überhaupt nicht abhängt, davon abhängt, welchen Kaderstatus man hat. At the end of my floor routine, I just um, like um, on my knees and then just have like my fist up in the air for like Black Lives Matter. <laughs> I really do it just to show, you know, like uh, equality and justice and love. I think that that's for me, that's what, you know, Black Lives Matter mean. Um, I think it means, you know, that black people deserve and uh, to be treated with respect and to have the same uh, chances and same opportunities as other races. Were there any consequences after you did your floor routine? I didn't really think of Black Lives Matter as something political, so I was like, oh, no, it's fine, because it's not political, right? I did it in uh, the Pan American Games, and no one really said, uh, that's you can't do that. But the Costa Rican like, Olympic Committee did say to me, like, you know, it's better not to do these things at these events because uh, it's not really uh, permitted. But I just said, you know, I wasn't really trying to, like, um, manifest against anyone or protest against anyone. I was just doing it because I think it means love and respect. So... That's why I did it, and um, I was actually kind of scared after I did it because I was like, oh gosh, that was not really allowed. And so it was kind of on me for not reading the rules first, I guess. But I think that it is really important to let people be free and express themselves however they want to. Another IOC regulation that's dominated this year's games had to do with trans athletes, whether they should be allowed to compete and how. Gender has been policed in sport since we've had organized sport. So there's this sense that in the female category that you have to prove you're a woman. So this idea that if if a woman is too big, too fast, too strong, then there's no way she can actually be a woman, that she must compete herself out of the female category and then she must be a man and therefore must be tested. Um, so we saw mandatory sex testing all the way up until 1999 at the Olympic Games. Male athletes never had to do this. It was only women athletes. In 2003, the IOC introduced their first trans inclusion policy. And then in 2015, the IOC updated that policy. The 2015 consensus statement also outlines years on hormone replacement therapy for trans women, um, a specific testosterone level or threshold that, that trans women must uh, be underneath in order to compete uh, in in the, the female category. And then for trans men, um, it really allows trans men to participate without restriction. Until we acknowledge the fact that this conversation is just as political as it is scientific, then we're not going to be able to, to move forward. Trans athletes have been allowed to participate at the Olympics since 2004, but this was the first year anyone did so openly. 
Fortunately, there are people all over the world using this as an opportunity to educate and drown out the negativity. I got recruited to swim in college at 16, and um, that was when I got my, my recruitment letter from Harvard and was really excited about that. But also at the time, I was really struggling with my gender identity. I learned that I'm transgender, and I learned all these other things about myself. And that's when I started being like, okay, now what do I do about sports? I came out to my the women's coach, Steph, first. She was the one who had recruited me. And I just said, hey, I, I'm transgender, and I, I don't know what to do. I just know I want to swim. And, um, and she was like, I don't know what to do either. Like, I'm not really sure what we're going to do, but I know we'll figure it out. She was very loving and caring towards me in that way. And, um, she was actually the one who brought the men's coach in and said, what should we do, you know, to the men's coach? And the men's coach was like, well, you're a male swimmer. Why wouldn't you swim for me? I'm on the men's swim team, right? Um, which sounds really simple, but you know, as you, as you know, and as anybody watching this probably knows, that's not that simple. <laughs> if I were a trans woman, there were absolutely, there would absolutely have been more hoops for me to jump through. I think logistically, I would have had to prove that I was on, uh, testosterone suppressants for one documented year before I could have started on the men's team. The fear, I think, surrounding trans women specifically in sports, the fear is that somebody's gonna, gonna like elect to, to transition in order to have like domination. And the fear is that countries are going to maybe encourage that or something. Um, and the reality is that just, that's not gonna happen. And, and the other thing is that when a trans woman wins, they are not taking, you know, displacing other women, um, except that they are just winning because they're just another woman. This year, trans athletes Laurel Hubbard from New Zealand's weightlifting team and Quinn from Canada's soccer team both competed at the games. But other trans Olympic hopefuls like Cece Telfer were barred due to testosterone levels not meeting IOC requirements. A stipulation the IOC has now said they'll change for the future. Most of the arguments have been based on research about cisgender men and comparing cisgender men to cisgender women in sports. There continues to be this underrepresentation of trans people in sports. And I think it's because they don't have this athletic advantage that everyone's saying they have. In fact, they have these huge disadvantages due to high rates of anxiety, depression, stigma, bullying, right? As a trans person, it's really difficult to get into these spaces to begin with, let alone to train and compete to reach an Olympic level. We did the same thing in the past with African-American athletes. There was all this pseudoscience and people were saying they were genetically superior and they had this science-based biological advantage. Same thing with trans athletes, right? It's the same narrative. There's this pseudoscience saying that they're, they're dangerous, they're a threat to people, we need to force them into their own sports league. None of it's true and it's stigmatizing and dangerous in the same way that separate but equal policies in the past were dangerous. Trans competitors aren't the only athletes affected by the rule. This year, two female Namibian track and field stars were banned from competing in certain events because their natural testosterone levels were too high. Funny how no one thought to ban Michael Phelps for his naturally occurring double extended joints, powerful lung capacity, or disproportionately long torso. I am an assistant professor at Ryerson University, and I'm also a mental performance consultant. And then I guess uh, I did a little bit of sports, so I'm also an Olympian and uh, I'm in athletics uh, for the high jump and eight-time Canadian champion. As a black woman, I think you're a lot of stereotypes they often get. Um, I think. Uh, how I might say something might be perceived um, as uh, harsher or something. So I, I'm always aware that there's a, another level of judgment that sometimes I'll get. Uh, I think I, from a young age, I've known that uh, 
being a, a woman of color, a girl of color, that um, that I have to try harder. So it's, it's uh, the, the standard for, for excellence, but also sometimes the opportunities might not be so easily open to you because others might assume that you can't do it or that you would not be interested. In an era where many black female athletes continue to face barriers to inclusion, the decision by members of the International Swimming Federation to ban a line of swim caps designed for natural black hair known as the soul cap not only felt tone deaf, but um, what's the, oh yeah, racist. The decision highlighted long-standing problems of inclusivity in the world of competitive swimming. And the backlash was swift. I think what we are trying to say as a community is hear our voice. If we want the sport to be more inclusive, then we have to work at understanding some of the barriers that preclude our community, people of color, women especially, with hair like Alice's, Alice's from engaging in, in aquatics as a whole and swimming. And hopefully, if we do have options like the Soul Cap, we will have a lot more young athletes in the sport. Fighting for inclusion in elite sports is something that many athletes know well, including bi-national or multi-ethnic athletes who, in order to compete in the Olympics, have to pick a side. They were in the 5,000 meters, and they represented Guatemala at the Olympic Games. That was my first time ever out of the country, so just being able to have the opportunity to first time to ever leave the country since I was born was a pretty unique experience. I'm a doctor recipient and the process was pretty uh, pretty rough. DACA does not allow me to leave the country unless for uh, special reasons and the Olympics was a special reason. I think uh, I was the only uh, Central American in the longer distance events for athletics and just it was an honor and a privilege to be wearing the Guatemala just because I was born there so I have that birthright to compete for my country. I, I was born in Guatemala but at the uh, age of one year old I left to the States and there is no pathway for me to be a citizen or apply for citizenship in any form or way. I imagine if I didn't go to the Olympic Games and just because I couldn't go just because I'm under DACA but uh, it's just a really uh, really challenging process for people to, like me to leave. I'm currently 22 years old right now and Thing, the future is still really bright. It was my first Olympics. I'm really excited and I can't wait to uh, wear, wear the uniform for Guatemala again in the next coming years. Is it possible to represent two countries at the same time? That is a question being asked of a lot of athletes. Let's take Naomi Osaka, for example. Hey, Naomi. We're, we're friends. Naomi Osaka is Japanese, but she's also Haitian. Aichi. Aichi. Her mother, Tamaki Osaka, is Japanese, but her father, Leonard Francois, is Haitian. Naomi was born in Osaka, Japan, but moved to New York with her family at the young age of three. There, she became a U.S. citizen and trained to be the tennis legend that she is today. But in 2019, Naomi renounced her U.S. citizenship in compliance with Japanese laws that do not formally recognize dual citizens. Naomi is what is known in Japanese as hafu, or half, which refers to people who are ethnically half Japanese. According to Japanese law, Hafu have the option to keep dual passports until the age of 22, after which they must choose one nationality over the other. But what kind of impact could a decision like that have on an athlete? I interviewed Southpaw phenom Alexis Rocha to find out. My name is Alexis Rocha. I'm currently a professional boxer signed with Golden Bird Promotions. My current record is 17 wins, one loss, and 11 knockouts. And where are you from? Oh, my parents are originally from Mexico. I was born here. So Alexis, when you're in the ring, do you feel any pressure to represent like one culture over the other? In the ring, 
I want to say I'm more Mexican. Boxing is very big in Mexico. I embrace the fact that I'm American. I love this country with all my heart. But I've also had that Mexican culture in me, which I love as well. Did that create any challenges for you while you were growing up? I come from Mexican culture. I'm also American too, so I could speak English perfectly. I could talk to anyone perfectly. But aside from me being Mexican, I want to show that the fact that I can go out there, embrace the fact that I'm Mexican, go out there and show younger people that look, like don't be afraid, don't be embarrassed, don't be afraid to where you come from, embrace it. And that goes with any ethnicity. Which country are you rooting for? Both, I'm rooting for both countries. Ah, that is incorrect. See, the correct answer is Haiti. Oh, Haiti. <laughs> You're rooting for Haiti, always. <laughs> That's a good one. This year, many Olympic athletes came forward to publicly address their struggles with mental health, risking their reputation and attracting the intense criticism that follows whenever an elite athlete dares to be human. When I was coming up, it really was, you're just complaining. Um, it's just like, nobody cares, you're, you're here to win and you have a goal. And um, so it, we became machines and it's very hard to process. Um, I don't know any elite athlete that doesn't struggle with eventually, even if you compartmentalize anything that's happened to you, it's going to eventually deteriorate. Um, so if you just are constantly told not to talk about it, not to talk about it, it's going to show up in um, either your performance or even off um, of your sport, just in your personal life. So I think it's absolutely amazing that athletes are saying, hey, we are human just because we are able to do incredible things with our bodies. We are still human. We still feel the pressures. We still want to talk to somebody. And I think it's absolutely amazing that they're so brave um, to have a platform to talk about it. Rod Benson, who in the heck are you? What's going on? Tell me everything. I played 12 years of professional basketball, three in the U.S., eight in South Korea, and a year in France. Uh, and no interest in North Korea? There was a lot of interest in North Korea, actually, but, uh, you know, they had just signed Dennis Rodman, and they thought two rods would be too extreme. That's right. So I really just kind of wanted to hear your take on it and what your experience was like in terms of mental health, specifically playing a professional sport. Mental health in sports isn't necessarily new in terms of, um, especially like preparation. But what you're seeing with these athletes now is that they're they're taking the steps beforehand to not end up, you know, shells of themselves later on in life. I personally have gone to therapy for a long time, but like my teammates and I never spoke of the pressures or the stress. Was there ever times when you would have conversations with your like your teammates? Teammates are probably your number one support system as an athlete. You know, one thing I wrote about with Simone Biles is, you know, I'd be shocked if her teammates didn't fully understand what she's going through and support her. It's the, you know, outside forces that tend to see it different. She went from being a gymnast and being one of the greatest athletes of all time to being more than that. And I think what we're actually seeing is especially like black women are really taking the reins and changing uh, the landscape. I don't know why people are having such a tough time accepting that athletes need mental health support. You know, there's right. 10,000 people probably worldwide right now who have the ability to play in the NBA physically and only, you know, 400 who have the extra bit that no one else has. So, you know, everyone talking about this are people who've never done it. They've never crossed these lines. They've never had to change fundamentally as a person 
to be successful at the, at the sports. Athletes like Naomi Osaka, Simone Biles, and Shikari Richardson all spoke candidly about the pressure of competition and the toll it's taken on their mental health. Put mental health first because if you don't, then you're not going to enjoy your sport and you're not going to succeed as much as you want to. So it's okay sometimes to even sit out the big competitions to focus on yourself because it shows how strong of a competitor and person that you really are rather than just battle through it. As someone who fancied herself a professional bench warmer in middle school, I have mad respect for the work ethic on display at the game. I mean, I'll never have the discipline of a synchronized swimmer, but that's what makes me relatable. The IOC's rigid regulations require athletes to conform to standards that often strip them of their identity and their voice, which is dehumanizing. By treating athletes like human beings, the Olympics will continue to attract and retain the fiercest competitors from all over the world, which means we all win. And if there's one thing I know about sportsing, isn't winning like the entire point? I'm Gabriela Fresquez for Radar 2021.